0: Hello, Gregoire. Hi, Edgar. Hello there. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. And here we have another colleague of ours. Hello, Tanil.
1: Hi, guys. How's it going?
0: Good, thank you. How are you doing?
1: Great. It's nice to be here.
0: Wonderful. Welcome. Thank you. So, Edgar,
2: what are we here to talk about today?
0: Today, we are recording a podcast with our colleague, Tanil, on how to start our own practice. So this is a conversation and discussion of the things that we need to keep in mind as we create and develop, build our practices.
1: I have the unique experience of going from New York City practice to opening a practice in the Midwest, in Missouri. So very different ways of operating, very different ways of working, and there are some major differences that I've found going from one experience to the next.
0: Usually we come from the New York-centric experience. Today we have Tenil, who is in the Midwest of the United States, and we are aware that other people listen to us from various countries around the world, so we just want to understand that what we do in our own practices here might not work in other places, and we want
2: to listen to what other people are doing elsewhere. We're going to try to bring at some points who might be interesting in general. If you have any questions, comments, please let us know. I think it's very important in psychoanalysis to always keep in mind that our practice differs depending on where we are practicing. If you have very different experience and things that you think we didn't bring up, let us know and we will try to bring that up in a following podcast. This is Edgar Francisco Danielson.
1: Hi, my name is Tenniel Blair Neff.
2: And this is Grégoire Pierre. Welcome to Discussions on Psychoanalysis. Danielle, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: I am a psychoanalyst, a creative arts therapist, and a licensed professional counselor. I'm practicing in Missouri. I'm also a visual artist, and from the president of the board of an arts organization here in Missouri.
2: We first met in Riverdale. Yes. And more specifically after that at PAP. Did you practice already when you were in the Riverdale in New York?
1: Yeah, I had a practice in the Bronx, actually in Riverdale, and I mm-hmm. had a small private practice in Manhattan with the Institute when I was in New York. I started my practice here probably about, I guess it was eight years ago, <laughs> went by fast.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, it's been a while.
0: Eight years ago already? Yes. Oh my goodness, we're getting younger and younger, all of us. <laughs> I'm, that's my story I'm sticking yes. to. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. I
1: feel my age these days.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You say that you are an art therapist as well. Was that before you became a psychoanalyst, concurrent, or afterwards?
1: Uh, Yes, I became an art therapist first. Mm -hmm. Then that kind of led me on the path to becoming a psychoanalyst. And then I became a professional counselor because Missouri did not have any other license that I could fit under. And practice uh, so, so I ended up getting my counseling license mostly through my art therapy degree
0: I see so they convalidated part of your education requirements from the arts therapy program
1: yeah I was oh, able okay. to get reciprocity mm. because my art therapy program had all the required counseling classes included mm. in it so I was able to That's get a license
0: that says something about how fractured is the system in the United States. From one state to the next, the requirements might be a little bit different. The license names are different. The scope of licenses are different.
2: I mean, it's in the name. It's the uh, United States. It doesn't even have a name on its own. <laughs> <laughs> it's a description. <laughs> it's a bunch of states united. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how united uh that's a different question
1: yeah <laughs> we could do a podcast just on the process it took me to get licensed in missouri
2: but let's start today's podcast on how to start one's on practice So before we start talking about what happens after one gets a license, we wanted to share a bit what happened before, because we start seeing patients before getting a license. We all started at NPAP in New York, so we will share somewhat a similar experience. I'm expecting that members of our agents did not go through NPAP and that things will be different Please let us know if you have any comments and things that you think uh, would be worth thinking into consideration. When we talk about starting once on practice, it starts with patients. tinia how did it start with you when you were at NPAP and specifically so at TRCC's a uh, clinical branch?
1: Well, they have a referral process to help you get clinical experience as part of your training. And so they have a intake coordinator that would, you know, meet with potential patients at the low fee level and then match them with a therapist or with a therapist in training. And so, you know, you'd get a referral maybe once every couple of months and in the beginning it's a little faster and I think you work your way up as time goes on.
0: When we are training as uh, psychoanalysts, what we do In the uh, referral arm of the institute, when we receive the patients, does that look like what will happen when we have our private practices? What do you think? And my answer is... No, because just to see how we get the patients in the institute, the patient goes first through an intake process, which we are not part of. So there is a person who has incredible experience as a psychotherapist doing the intake process. And that person then who knows the candidates then will try to match the patient with a therapist hoping that there will be a good fit between patient and analyst. But we don't participate directly in the intake process. Therefore, the patient goes twice through the experience of first calling the institute to get an appointment, going through a consultation with a psychotherapist, That we, we call that the intake, and then the patient calls again once they are referred to us,
2: a candidate in training. Do you remember how your practice started, meaning your first contact with a patient? What are your thoughts about that? Maybe first contact on the phone and then in the office.
0: I do remember. The way it happened is that it was the intake director who will call me first Mm -hmm. and let me know, I have a patient with these characteristics and this history. Would you be interested in working with this patient? And I would say yes or no.
2: Oh, and you remember saying no at the beginning? Of course, I didn't say no. <laughs> Just to be <laughs> true. <laughs> no, I'm a picky therapist. In, Not <laughs> at the beginning. Of in course, training. <laughs> yeah.
0: I was, you know, eager to start working with patients. The process is right in the sense of we listen to where the patient is located in terms of their mental health and their goals quote-unquote goals uh, for therapy and we tried to ponder if we are a good fit but initially I would say yes all the time of course as time yeah you don't ponder as time passed by then the ponder became a, a real reflection is this a good fit or not and sometimes I would say no
2: Danielle, do you remember your experience? Because you already had seen patients from a different place. Uh, How was it when TRCC referred you, your first patients at TRCC? Like, how do you remember?
1: I had been seeing patients in a clinic for years before I started at TRCC. So I did have some experience doing individual psychotherapy, but I was anxious. You know, I was anxious. It was a different setting. In some ways, it was more formal. and other ways, it was informal because working in a nonprofit organization, which is what I did before TRCC, it's very institutional, very clinical. And there's kind of a warmth to starting a practice, even at TRCC. And at the time, we were in a building that was like a beautiful brick building on 13th Street, and it had a real warmth to it. That did change somewhat later, but the stakes felt higher. It felt like you're more in charge of yourself. Even though the institution was there to support you, I remember feeling anxious about it.
0: I remember, in fact, I began supervision before seeing patients. I made that decision because I guess I needed someone to help me contain my anxiety. Yes. Um, I would recommend that. You can talk with your supervisor about what about the first time that you are going to see a patient? What do you do? What do you say? Sometimes there are a lot of questions that it's better to explore before, way before seeing patients. I did that, yeah. Gregor, you had been a psychotherapist in France and then you came to continue your training here in New York City. How was that for you to start seeing patients and build your own practice here in the city?
2: Well, it was a relief I had been training with only uh, classes for, I think, a year, a year and a half. And I was so done with it. I really wanted to see people. And I remember that it felt that all of a sudden I was back into a position that I was more comfortable with. Uh, being only a student, I think I was completely done with. And it felt good. But I also remember that despite the fact that patients were offered by the Institute, as you said, Tennille, there was a sense of still, it felt like they were my patients. I still remember the first person who came to TRCC. And I started already thinking, like, is this going to be a patient I'm going to see for a while? Is it going to be a patient who's going to stay with me even after the license? Well, for the record, no. But all those questions started popping in my mind and my practice started on the phone as you said guys trcc coordinator would send us a folder with informations about potential patients and then when we accept the patients uh, would call us we were not at the time allowed to call the patients correct that's correct yes the thing is how do you answer the phone because they're not your buddies but you're also anxious And are you really already legitimate in your role as a clinician? I mean, now people call me, I'm in my role. You know, it's like I'm uh, the psychoanalyst. When you start or restart, there's something like you have to put on a role in some ways, which is different than the one you had before. I mean, in France, I was mostly a psychologist inside institutions. And as you said, Tenille, it's, it's a very different feel. When people are calling you, it's a lot more intimate. And also, I started thinking about my office. You, Tenille, started earlier at NPAP than Edgar and I did. So Edgar and I only knew the one on 14th Street. Uh, and uh, is it 14th Street? No, 13th. No, 13th, but uh, well. the block. Mm-hmm. Block, the block over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and We had to share offices. And so Mm -hmm. early on, I tried to block patients in such a way that I would keep the same office all the time to create a sense that my practice was more real. Did you have thoughts like that, guys, maybe, Tennille?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, that was one of the difficulties is going into a room that, isn't your own, set up differently almost every time you go in because other therapists are using Mm -hmm. the space. And so they reset it. And I remember my very first session with my very first TRCC referral, I couldn't find the clock.
2: Oh, that's annoying.
0: And
1: so I I didn't I looked everywhere I couldn't find the clock and then I was like how am I going to tell when this session is over? I can't see the clock. And the client was in the session with me and I was like so nervous. And uh yeah, and I never did find the clock. I think I went like 5 minutes over or something like
2: but then someone might have been waiting for you to leave the office.
1: Yeah, sitting outside. Yeah, That was another experience. And, and moving from room to room, hour after hour during yeah. training. like
0: It's the musical chairs
2: of therapy. <laughs> yeah. <but> it
1: was. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that was not nice.
1: No. Yeah, you don't have control of your environment when you're seeing patients at a training institute, yeah. which does cause all kinds of things, even transference-related issues and counter-transference-related issues. Transference towards the institute institution itself.
0: And the frame changing, for example, if you are seeing a patient twice a week, three times a week, you cannot see the person in the same room, then of course, something is added to the experience, which is now on Wednesdays, we are in this room on Fridays in that other room on Mondays in that other room, it complicates the experience of the analysis, the
2: continuity of the frame was Mm -hmm. much harder to maintain but you could be very focused on that. And I was able to save two, one, two for myself every day. But the thing is, even as focused as I was, sometimes patients had to reschedule and you had to see them in a different place. The sense that it's your office then somewhat crumbles.
0: I have to say that that experience of moving from one office to another, seeing patients in different offices, I think in my case, I allowed that to move into my private practice for a while because I sublet from a colleague on Mondays and Tuesdays and then from another colleague on Thursday. So I had two different offices. In a way, I was repeating the pattern of the institute, meaning moving from one office office to another. And of course, it complicates absolutely everything about the frame, about the scheduling. In a little while, in a few months, I decided, "No, no, I cannot go on like this. And then I rented my own office full time, which allowed me to keep my patients in the same space.
2: The transition to what happens after we get the license. There's also the question of the fee determination. As a reminder to our listeners, there is a very long podcast on fee determination, the first one. So if you want an in-depth discussion about it, before you have your license, one of the main difference is that you cannot determine your fees at all. You can't even decide whether you're in or out of network. Did you guys start thinking about it before your license? How did that happen? How did you construct this part of your practice even before you were able to set the fees?
1: You know, for me, this was one of the most anxiety-provoking parts of a practice. And and it still is today, like the fee setting, fee determining with patients. And I think training and the structure of the institute kind of let me have a pass on that and I had to force myself to think about it. And I had to really work hard when the time came for me to start raising fees and when the time came for me to transition from the Institute to my own practice. Like I had to be so thoughtful and I had to push myself very hard with the help of supervisors to really raise that fee and... uh, you know, and especially, you know, I came from the nonprofit world before that, where everybody's impoverished and struggling. So working with people who could pay a higher fee was a big transition for me as well.
0: It resonates with me what you're saying, I didn't pay much attention while seeing patients in the Institute, because the fee was set by the Institute, even the way we are going to raise the fee, If we are going to raise it, it falls into a sliding scale established by the institute, not by the therapist. And then, I think one of the challenges is that we are training, and therefore we want to keep our patients. And there might be uh, resistance to increasing fees, even within the sliding scale of the institute, because we are concerned about losing our patients. So all of that gets in the mix. And if one of those patients is what we call in, in psychoanalytic training a control case, then the more concerned we are. Could you
2: remind our audience what the control case is?
0: Sure. In some institutes, one of the ways that we train is that with a supervisor, we follow one case that is a frequency of three times a week or more for a period of one or two years sometimes more. And we follow that case in a very detailed way with our supervisors. And then by the end of our training, we usually present one of the control cases and that becomes the final step before we, are, we get our certificate as psychoanalysts. Which is completely different from the license as a psychoanalyst. Yeah. Those are two different and separate processes. There are conscious and unconscious forces at play when we're seeing patients in the institute. I said, one, because we want to have a crew enough clinical hours. Second, because some of our patients will become our control cases which means that we will be able to continue the training until we end the training. Those two examples give you a sense of how trapped some psychoanalytic candidates may feel within the bounds
2: of the institute. Now let's talk about what happens once we get the license. And I think what Egard just mentioned is key to how things start, because at least from my experience, You indeed need for your own training, so for your own personal growth and professional growth, you need to have patients who will come frequently. And the thing is, when you start, it's so unlikely that you get people who will pay you enough and will come three times a week. And so you end up having a conflict between accruing hours for your final case and therefore to become a member of your institute and also the fact that you need to sustain your, your life. I know that in my mm-hmm. case things happen abruptly because once I get the license even if I had talked about it with all of my patients before and discussed with them fee increase that at the time I think most of my patients were paying $30 35 and I would ask them depending on actually what they earn uh, if they could pay maybe 60 70 which is still especially in New York and kind on of low and I think half of my patients left I mean, that's a hypothesis I created for myself that some patients could not tolerate that all of a sudden their therapist, myself, had moved to a different position. Because you see them, they're poor, you're poor, and then all of a sudden you are in a position where you can be established, you have more symbolic powers, even if you're still exactly the same. And I'm guessing that's part of why some of my patients left, because the fee increase was supposed to be manageable. So the start of the practice, I think, is grounded in those, I think, contradictions. At least it was to me. Tenille, how was it for you?
1: I kind of started my practice abruptly. I did have another license to work under, which was good. But I did something kind of unique that I don't think a lot of therapists do. I was living in the Bronx, and I decided to open a private practice in the Bronx while also maintaining the one in Manhattan at the Institute. And I took out a small business association loan. Oh, Mm -hmm. which gave me a little padding to quit my day job. So I did a little bit of consulting work at a college supervising some candidates in their graduate programs, but... Really, I had my patients at TRCC, and I received this loan, the Small Business Association loan, because I lived in an area that didn't have a lot of clinicians working. So that really helped me establish. So I didn't have the same pressure to hurry up and raise my fee to afford rent, which I think is what a lot of analysts get into, is that once you get your license and you have to get an office space, your expenses go up really fast, Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of them. So you have to raise your fee, otherwise you can't sustain your practice. So I was lucky that that SBA loan helped me absorb some of the shock of
0: that. That is quite a creative way of putting yourself out there on solid ground. I appreciate that. And SBA loan, it has very low interest and long periods to repay. So, yeah.
1: And my practice did do pretty well from the beginning because in the Bronx, there wasn't a lot of therapists and there were a lot of people that needed Mm -hmm. therapists and wanted the convenience of being close to home. Didn't want to commute to Manhattan and pay higher fees for a Manhattan therapist, which I think is just part of it because your office space costs more. My office in the Bronx did not cost as much as my office Mm -hmm. in Manhattan. So I had some flexibility, which was really nice and I think really helped me get started just on a practical level.
2: Edgar, how was it for you?
0: I raised my fees slowly. In my case, is because I had a full-time job that was very flexible, and therefore I could you know, work a few hours during the day, a few hours during the night. Extremely flexible, but it was a full-time job. Therefore, I had an income, and I took time to increase my fee after I was licensed. Then some of my unconscious conflicts colluded with that, And it took me too long to increase the fees. But I I acknowledge that that was more of my own inner conflicts and things that I needed to work through. And I worked through them and acknowledged that increasing the fee is not doing harm, which I think at some part in my, my mind, I thought I was doing harm to people. So it was a slow process for me. And then the other way that I somehow was able to grow faster my private practice is that I decided to be in network with a couple of health insurance companies. The thing with the health insurance company is that you get volume, meaning you get more access to patients because they want to pay using health insurance benefits, but the health insurance benefits are lower, meaning the company pays you a smaller fee than your full fee. But still, it's almost like a compromise. I was able to grow faster, but having lower fee because I was in network, which is different from your case, Keguar. Always you were out of network.
2: Yeah. No in network ever for me. (laughs) I don't want this. (laughs) I did the
1: same as I did like Edgar Digg. I did get a network with a couple insurance companies and it helped. It, It was a little, I mean, it was, it brought in some patients I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And in the beginning of the practice, it was really helpful, but I definitely understand Gregoire why you decided not to,
2: go back to the first podcast i was and i'm still in a very specific niche i was very lucky to have uh, as soon as i got my license a few patients who could pay me a relatively high fee so i decided to not go there and i do not regret before we go deeper into in out of network maybe we could try to give some advice for people who are going to start their own practice The first advice I want to give is, mind how many business cards you print. Because from my experience, (laughs) you will print way too much. Just so you know. I have about 500 business cards waiting in a box, and the box is getting a lot of dust. So please, please be mindful. There's no need, (laughs) really. Mm -hmm. I think we have this sense at the beginning that we're going to spread everywhere. Um, You might not.
0: Just to add on that, what you're saying, I think that is connected to a fantasy that we're going to grow our practices faster than other people. So for some reason, we believe that that's what's going to happen. We have some magic whatever that will make our practices grow faster. In terms of, of advice, I think having a space that you can control is extremely, extremely important. Let it be a small space Uh, let it be a home office or something that you can rent from an institute, for example, but you can't control that space, it's extremely useful because then you have more leeway in terms of scheduling. Then you're offering more options. People who work during a, a nine to five can only see you after five or people who have a flexible schedule because there are students, they can see you during the day. But if you don't control your space, then that will limit the possibilities of offering more options to your patients.
1: In terms of advice, Gregor, well, I agree about the business cards. I have way too many and I never use them. And also, <laughs> I think two things I've learned over the years in both New York and in Missouri practice is You know, having a network of people that you connect with, and that's one of the things the Institute is good for is that you make a lot of connections with colleagues and you're in supervision Mm -hmm. with people and I think supervision groups, as a clinician, are beneficial in so many ways. But just being able to refer to each other and trust the person you're referring to, and they refer back to you—that there's a trust in that person's work is quality. Sometimes you want to believe it, and you find out that the person that you referred to wasn't very good. Yeah, it which happens. It's a bummer, <laughs> but. I think in a supervision situation, you kind of know how people work and they know how mm-hmm. you work and they know if they like it or not. Mm-hmm. And if they like it, they'll they'll send people your way. And I found that to be true. I had a couple really great colleagues in New York City when I was practicing there that referred to me a lot. And that was so helpful in the Midwest where I'm practicing now. I think an online presence is really important and not website. I think a big mainstream like psychology today, like I tend to get a lot of referrals and calls from those platforms here versus in New York City. It may not work the same way there, but here it's absolutely essential.
2: For people who are not American, psychology today is a website where, I mean, it's a must if you are a clinician, you have to create your own profile, and prospective patients can look for therapies depending on the geographic area, the specialties, gender, a lot of different criteria. We get uh, people contact us from that. I mean, Edgar, what's your take with uh, Sakuji Day, maybe website?
0: I am in psychology today. I think it's not very helpful in largely dense areas like New York City. Because, you know, if you put my zip code, there are probably like 5 million therapists, I'm exaggerating, in that zip code. So it's not helpful. I can see the difference between here and Missouri. People access Tennille's zip code, and they will have a smaller number of therapists there. And therefore, it's not overwhelming for the one who is looking for information. But here, and I invite anyone to do that, put a zip code in Manhattan, and you will see so many therapists listed that it's overwhelming, extremely overwhelming. Now, I am also in a different directory, which is called Therapy Den, Therapy and then D-E-N, which is an alternative progressive directory.
2: What do you mean a progressive directory?
0: What I mean by that is that they are not shy about putting the criteria like polyamorous relationships, saying queer
2: they're not doing that in psychology today
0: they are not famous for that in fact psychology today if you look at at the magazine of psychology today the number of models that are people of color and not women in a sexy position are almost non-existent so that tells you what is the focus
2: because you're watching psychology today magazine you open it do i
0: (laughs) I, of course, it gets to my P.O. box. And I know, so and then I, oh, it goes in my it, trash bag. and it goes. I recycle. <laughs> recycle. <laughs> and it goes to recycling. Um, I mean, I, try, I try from time to time to read it, but man, it's very difficult. Yeah. I'm trying to put my money, so to speak, and literally also, in this directory and all the directories that cater to people who are more on the margins. Okay. People who are looking for someone who they can have a conversation about, well, as I said, kinky sex or polyamory. You feel like Sekoji today is more prude. It seems to me that it's too sanitized. That's one thing. But the other thing is I think the magazine, the way they portray women and the lack of people of color speaks volumes to me. So I just want to make the distinction that there are other directories that cater to a different demographic, and that might be very helpful. I get people that come from therapy then, that other directory I mentioned, and when they are looking for a therapist, they want, let's say, not my case in this particular situation, but they are looking for a non-binary therapist. While psychology today will
2: be more restricted about gender identities, yeah, and uh, so and then there's a question of uh, one's own website. Were you saying, Danielle, that you think in rural area the w- one's own website is maybe not useful?
1: I think it's useful. Mm-hmm if people want more information about you. But I find that really in the Midwest, not very many people know about psychotherapy and especially about psychoanalysis. Like I am the only psychoanalyst in like my whole area. So if they want to know more about you, then they can click on your website. But I think most of the people that are looking, they do a basic Google search. The first thing that comes up is psychology today and they follow that. Mm -hmm. They don't have access to the same information information Because therapy isn't a part of the culture. Like in New York City, a lot of people are in therapy and you're kind of assumed that your friends are all in therapy. And, you know, it's just part of the culture here. People think if you're in therapy or you're seeking help in any way that you've got a problem, like the idea of just knowing yourself
2: unlike them.
1: Yeah, <laughs> knowing yourself more deeply seems like a waste of money. Like, it. Like, how will somebody help yeah. me know myself more deeply? Like, there's just a huge difference in the way therapy is thought about
2: here. And how do you deal with that? How do you approach people? How do you present yourself as a professional knowing those constraints?
1: You know, I do a lot of education in my initial consultation with patients. And I have a booklet that I actually printed out that mm-hmm. talks about the things about what makes a psychotherapy different from a CBT or, you know, and I have to do a lot more education about what therapy is continually, because I think here, the focus on individualism, and there's a bit of a dependence denial, I think in this area, and I'm from this area. So I understand it from the outside and the inside. But the idea that you might need someone else, or that it's okay to reach out. That is not something that's very understood here. And mm-hmm. it does create a lot of challenges for me practicing. People think they can come to two sessions and be cured. And oh, yeah. you know, after a couple months, they are like, well, I've been coming to this therapy for three months and I'm still having this problem. It's kind of this idea that talk to somebody and then it'll just go away. I'm generalizing. Not everyone is like that, but a lot of people mm-hmm. do struggle with the basic concept of psychotherapy here.
2: And in the way you put yourself out there, How do you think about that in terms of the way you message your clinic? How do you approach advertising, to put it simply?
1: You know, I'm just very honest. In my website, I have a lot of descriptions about why I feel or, you know, in a psychoanalytic practice, this is helpful because of this. I'm very, very descriptive, kind of preparing people mentally for the way I work. And I found that a lot of people are attracted to the way that I work because not very many people are, you know, they're much more short-term focused. So people are interested in the unconscious. What is that? That's mysterious. You know? uh-huh. How does my past affect my present? So in some ways, it helps me a lot because I'm unique in that way.
2: I guess this is it for today.
0: Our first podcast with Daniel. And thank you for listening.
2: Come back next month for the second part. If you like the podcast, give us five stars. Otherwise, uh, don't give us any stars. Don't even vote. (laughs) Don't give give your opinion.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Until next month.
2: Bye-bye. Bye.